Well, we are in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. And uh, I will just confess to you guys, I did not realize how hard it would be to preach from the book of Daniel. It's only my fault, but I will blame the elders because they said, yeah, let's do Daniel when I brought the idea to them. And they should have stopped me. They should have said, no, Aaron, it's a very complicated book. There's bizarre visions and dreams, and there's large chunks of uh, history that you have to get into. They should have said, it will be too challenging for you. You will want to give up and just do faith, hope, and love every single week for the whole fall. And I should have listened to them, but they didn't say it, so it's their fault. But no, we're in Daniel chapter 4 today. And really one of the overarching themes of the book of Daniel is how do we live faithful lives to God during the time of our exile? This book is written during a time when the people of Israel were removed from their homeland and they are living under Babylonian uh, occupation or Babylonian rule. And so they have to learn how do we be faithful to God in the middle of this time, this time of our exile. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus exiles. And so we're instructed to learn from their example, how do we live faithful lives when we don't yet live in the fullness of the kingdom of God? We're still waiting for Jesus' return. Amen? And so that's the mega theme of this book. And we've seen, you know, over the last few chapters, things like exiles pay attention to little things. We've seen that exiles seek the welfare of the city. Exiles seek wisdom from God and his word. Exiles seek to be courageous even when there's pressure. And today, we're going to really see that exiles need to flee from pride and pursue humility. So I am going to invite Heather to come, and she is going to do our scripture reading. If you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter 4 is where we'll be, and then I'll pray, and we'll spend some time unpacking this. Good morning. This is the interpretation, O King. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. God, we pray today that you would give us humble hearts. God, I I want my heart to be like good, healthy soil that could receive uh, the truth of your word. God, would you help all of us to recognize where we are prideful, where we are boastful, where we are arrogant, how, how it specifically comes out of us, each and every single one of us. And God, would you help us to pursue grace and pursue humility by looking at the humility of our Savior Jesus. God, would you guard my lips and, and direct my, my words that I might teach and say that which is uh, truthful and is helpful to build us up as we pursue Jesus. In whose name we pray. And everyone said... Amen. Really quick, before I get into this, I got a text from somebody that said there is a silver Toyota with your lights on, ending in 7442. I should have announced it before, because then while every head was bowed and every eye was closed, you could have snuck out to go turn your headlights off. Uh, so if that's you, no judgment. We all do it at some point or another. Here's, here's the deal. 
Daniel chapter four is this dream about a tree. And so I spent this whole week, you know, prepping the sermon and reading about the tree and lots of tree stuff. And then sometimes the good Lord providentially just knows that I need a little extra help in my sermon prep. And this week he delivered a little extra help in a series of text messages from my brother. My brother doesn't live in Alaska anymore, but he was in Alaska visiting, uh, I think he was going hunting, moose hunting, because he's a real man. Uh, and he can, he can make it. And I had to leave. I go and eat food that other people have hunted for me. So he texts me. He's staying with my uncle and he's staying, uh, my uncle and my cousin's family. And while he was staying there, they decided to chop down a tree. So this is a picture of my uncle. He is also a real man, as you can tell by not only the plaid shirt, but the gloves, the eye protection, the hard hat. And that's my cousin standing over there. Now, at one point, they get in and they start actually chopping down the tree. And you have to understand, my uncle is a little bit of a wild man. I mean, he's been in Alaska his whole entire life, pretty much. And uh, he just is, he just kind of goes for it. And my brother sent this text. It just said, uh, he is 100% going to drop this tree on his house. (laughs) And I know what you're thinking that's Aaron's brother. I know we don't look particularly related, uh, but that is my brother. And you can tell he's even got not only a hard hat and a very manly beard, a reflective green shirt and hearing protection for the chainsaw. He is a real manly man. And I would like you to take his face off of the screen now, if you would, please. So I'm just chuckling to myself because, you know, this, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, we're about to read about this tree falling over. My brother is sitting there in real time, like panicking that my uncle is going to drop a tree on his house. Have any of you ever actually chopped down a tree or or been present when it's taken place? I I, I think I did it, like helped my dad when I was like a little kid. We we knocked down a tree, chopped down a tree. I don't know what you call it. We removed a tree from its place of living. But the most recent thing I did uh, related to that was just this last fall, when I was uh, painting my house and there were some branches of a tree that were hitting the house. And so I went up on a ladder and I ran a chainsaw. I'm not that unmanly, but I ran a chainsaw and I took a few branches off and one of the branches, a pretty good sized branch, and I forgot to move a five gallon bucket and it fell and it exploded the five gallon bucket. And it just kind of put that fear in me like, oh, it's, it's just a branch of a tree, but man, that thing is heavy and it's serious and knocking down a tree is a pretty powerful thing. Trees are pretty much found, uh, like symbolism and mythology about trees, really in every culture. Think about a tree. I mean, yes, the power and the strength of a tree. If you've ever tried to remove a stump, uh, a tree stump, they're like in there. And they provide so much for us. I mean, they provide food with their, their fruits or seeds, it provides sometimes uh, medicine from different leaves, different types of trees. They provide, some of them provide, you know, saps and oils that we can use for various purposes. They provide shade from wind or rain or hot sun. Like a tree is a pretty powerful thing. They're pretty great, right? You ever thought about trees? I, I, I can, well, my wife's here. I, I said it in the first service without her permission, but she's really been getting into trees lately. And she's, it's, it seems new. Listen, all right, we got to work this out because she's like, she's like, look at those trees. I'm like, yeah, it's a tree. She's like, no, but like, look at them. I'm like, no, like, it's just a tree. And she's like, she literally said to me, she goes like, as we get older and like our kids grow up, like I'm going to get books and we're going to like learn about the different types of trees. And I'm like, no, because I know what happens next is then you get binoculars and you start watching birds too. And I don't want that. She's like, that sounds awesome. Let's, let's get old together and look at trees and birds. I'm like, ah, okay. That's just my pride coming out. 
And that's really what we're talking about today, less about trees and more how this tree serves as a symbol for pride. And I want to define pride before we dive in here really briefly because sometimes we use the word pride in a good way. And the Bible actually uses the word pride in a good way. Sometimes the Bible will talk about pride as like an esteem for others. There's a verse in First Thessalon- or sorry, 2 Thessalonians where the Apostle Paul is talking to this church in Thessalonica and he says, hey, I always boast about you. Boast. I mean, it's the same word for evil boasting if you look it up in the Greek. I always boast about you because of how faithful you are and how steadfast you are even when there's affliction and hardships. You guys are really steady and so I, I just brag on you. I'm proud of you guys. That's okay. So it's good to say, hey, kiddo, I'm really proud of you. You did a good work. That word pride isn't always used in an evil sense and even sometimes used in a sense of like a healthy self-respect or a healthy sense of self-accomplishment. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul also says that he wants to stand before Jesus someday and be proud of the race that he ran. It's the exact same word. I want to I be able to be proud of the way I lived my life before Jesus someday. So there can be a, a, a good sense of pride. I'm, I'm proud of you for a good job you did. I'm, I'm proud of myself for something I did. But most of the time, the Bible uses the word pride to refer to a sin where we lower God and we elevate ourselves. Where we think too much of ourselves in, in a way that diminishes God. Now, human beings are amazing, Right? And I try a lot to speak about the dignity and the value and the worth that God created humanity in his image and likeness. How amazing is that? But the problem is, is we're not often content to be an image bearer of God. We want to be God. That's pride. That's sinful pride. So that's what really is at the core of this this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has today. That's what's really going on in all this imagery and symbolism of a tree. And so the big idea for today actually comes from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So if you got your Bibles, I invite you to read along. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Well, now, what is this? What does that sound like? Sounds like the opening of a letter, does it not? Sounds like the beginning of a letter, like, you know, Paul, to the church in Philippi, grace and peace be to you. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing a letter, and it has been preserved in sacred scripture. And by the way, I don't think that I have done a good enough job of really making you hate Nebuchadnezzar enough so far in this series. Like, have you really thought about how much of a, just a bad guy Nebuchadnezzar is? Like, he's the one that comes in, and he invades Jerusalem, and he carries away the people and the objects of worship from the temple. And then he's, like, renaming people after the names of his own gods and putting them through, like, a three-year reprogramming thing, like the Borg from Star Trek. Oh, not enough nerds in this service. There was was more in the first— He's— throwing hissy fits if people can't interpret his dream and actually not even interpret the dream, tell him what the dream is, all that like tear you limb from limb stuff. And then he builds a giant statue and says, everyone needs to bow down and worship this giant statue or I will burn your carcass in a furnace. And then he throws an absolute hissy fit when the people don't do it. And then like he kind of gives some credit to God. Like he's a bad guy. 
Nebuchadnezzar is a bad, wicked ruler. You do not want to live under the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet here it is. I'm writing a letter to all the people in all the whole earth, because he's ruling over pretty much all of it at this point. Peace be multiplied to you. Here's why I'm writing the letter. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. Wait, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now that doesn't sound like the Nebuchadnezzar that we have known for the last three chapters, does it? Something has happened. Something has taken place in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Also, it's personal. It It seemed good to me to write this letter to you. I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 4, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I had that Babylonian lazy boy. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Chapter two, we're like, I didn't, I didn't accidentally open the wrong chapter. It's happening again. Calls them all in. This time I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, but in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, king of the magicians, musicians. I did that in the last service. I almost just did it again. Magicians, not musicians. That's a Freudian slip. I apologize. Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. I don't know why he didn't call Daniel in the first place. Why does he go through the other guys? But he eventually learns his lesson. Come on, Daniel, I need your help. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, in the middle of the earth. And its height was great. Has it, have anybody, uh, sorry, have any of you ever been to the redwoods or been to like just super tall trees? It's a pretty awe-inspiring thing, is it not? I saw this great tree. The tree grew strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. That's a big tree. Its leaves were beautiful. And its fruit abundant. And in it was was enough food for everybody. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. Does this language sound familiar to anybody? To me, it really uh, reminds me of language from Eden. It's like Garden of Eden kind of language. There's a tree and the leaves are beautiful. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. A watcher is a very unusual, uncommon term. I don't have time to unpack it in totality today. Come back on November 10. We're going to get into watchers and all sorts of weird stuff that week, okay? 
Suffice to say, it's a holy one. This is a supernatural being that is a, a messenger from the Lord. I'll just leave it at that for now. I won't quote you from First Enoch or any of the odd visions and other things about watchers. It gets into some really bizarre territory. November 10th, put that in your calendar. This watcher came down from heaven and proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. It's a complete teardown. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field let him be, let him be, let him, oh, that changed. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. So the tree is a man that will now become a beast. This is kind of how dreams work, isn't it? Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth, let his mind be changed from a man's, let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules. He rules the kingdoms of men, and he gives it to whom he will, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, please tell me the interpretation, because all of the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for, as I have said multiple times, the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Interesting dream. Interesting moment. Then Daniel... Verse 19, this is really interesting to me. Whose name was Belteshazzar was dismayed for a while. Daniel is upset. Daniel is kind of struggling. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, don't let the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Don't let it bother you. Just, just come on, tell me. Belteshazzar answered, it's Daniel, and said, my lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Pause. This is an interesting interaction because again, Nebuchadnezzar is a stinker. <laughs> he is a bad guy. He is the one who is directly responsible for kidnapping Daniel from his home, removing him forcibly to a foreign land. And yet in this moment, there's the relationship between them. Like there is something akin to like concern on the part of Nebuchadnezzar. Like, hey, Belteshazzar, don't, don't be bothered. Tell me what's going on. And then what's even more surprising is there's something that kind of looks like love for an enemy from Daniel to King Nebuchadnezzar. My king, may this be for someone else. I've got bad news. I'm dismayed. I'm alarmed. I'm upset. Oh, king, I need to tell you, prepare yourself. This is not going to be good news. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached the heaven, it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. That dream, that tree that you told me about, it is you, O king, 
who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven in your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And here's here's the grace. As it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. This is not a permanent decision. It's going to last from the time uh, that you know until the time that you know that heaven rules. This seven periods of time. And then Daniel actually doubles down. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you I want to give you some advice, king. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel, it's almost like a faithful are the wounds of a friend kind of moment. Daniel goes, hey, king, I've, I've told you the interpretation, but he didn't do this back in chapter two. He says, I got some advice for you. Will you listen to my advice, O king? And it's not just any advice. It's not like we should store grain in a storehouse. It's you need to change. You need to not only stop doing the wicked things that you're doing. You're the king. You're the great tree. You're supposed to protect and provide and feed for all the people. But in fact, you are oppressing people. You are not showing mercy to the oppressed. You need to repent and you need to change and maybe God will have grace and this sentence will not come upon you. Now here's something that's interesting I want to just spend a brief moment on because throughout the book of Daniel, there is a lot of language that is really high sovereignty of God sort of language. Are you guys seeing all that? It's, you know, he rules over the kingdoms of men. He sets things up, kings up. He removes them. He, he's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. Who can stand against his will? Who can oppose him? Like it's very high sovereignty of God sort of language. But here in this moment is very personal, you need to make a change language. See, there's a couple of ditches we can go into when we, when we read the Bible. Uh, there, there's one ditch when we, when we read the Bible, we can kind of ignore all this sovereignty of God sort of stuff, or we can kind of diminish it. Like, yeah, I mean, God's sovereign, but we kind of diminish the, the ideas of the sovereignty of God a little bit. Particularly in our culture, it's easy for us to do, because at least since I can remember my own childhood, I have been spoon-fed a diet of nothing but you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. You just got to believe in yourself. You got to dream your dreams. You just got to, like, you guys know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like when I was a kid, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but when I was 11 years old, I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be an NBA player. I practiced and I played and I loved the NBA. And this is like, I was like telling my dad, I was like, dad, listen, 
when I grow up, I'm going to go to this college. I'm going to play basketball. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be, you know, this type of player. And I'm going to get drafted. I'm going to play for the Phoenix Suns. Because the Phoenix Suns had Charles Barkley and Dan Marley and Kevin Johnson. And they almost beat the Bulls in the final. If not for that doggone Paxson, his three-pointer. And I'm still not quite over it. But I'm like, I'm going to be an NBA star. And my dad was like, son, I'm five foot eight. <laughs> and he's like, You're, you, you got to understand, son, those are giants of men. They, they are not mere mortals. These are men with a 27 foot wingspan. And I was like, dad, but the TV told me to believe in my dreams and I'm gonna do it. And he's like, son, I'm five foot eight. And I showed him, because I'm five foot nine. So there, dad. I, I can't even like make a free throw now. <laughs> like this idea of like, just, just you can do anything. You can be anything. This is the cultural air that we swim in. And we, that's a mixing of metaphors. It's the water we breathe, right? It's the, we just live in this culture of just like, just very, uh, very much empowerment. And, and, and there's some good to all of that too, like to take risks and to do all that. But we got to remember that God is sovereign. And we should not seek to lessen or to diminish any of the language that the Bible uses about God's sovereignty. However, particularly in certain circles of, of, of Christians, they read that sovereignty of God language and then they swing over into this ditch where it almost makes it sound like we're either robots or puppets on a string or we don't have responsibility or our choices aren't real or we don't have agency. And that is utter foolishness as well. I mean, look what it says. You should make some changes, O King Nebuchadnezzar. You should engage your will. You should take responsibility, and maybe the Lord will change his mind. Isn't that, is that interesting to hear to anybody? The prophet Jeremiah. I've referenced Jeremiah a few times during this series because Jeremiah is prophesying and writing at the same time as Daniel. They, they, they're contemporaries. They live around the same time. And there's a really interesting prophecy that comes through Jeremiah, but this is God speaking he says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if they do evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, well, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Here's the point. I'm just... uh, This is a little bit of a side point, but I really think it's worth mentioning. We need to learn how to be comfortable speaking simultaneously a very high view of the sovereignty of God and a very high view of the responsibility and the agency of human beings. I don't know how that works. The secret things belong to the Lord, but I just know that that's how the scripture speaks to us about our God and about us. How do free will and, you know, sovereignty work together? it's above my pay grade. I'm sorry. Maybe we could, you know, get a watcher to come and tell us. I don't know. But at the end of the day, we need to recognize that God is sovereign and we need to take ownership of our responsibilities and live as though our choices matter because they do. So what will Nebuchadnezzar do? What's going to happen? Verse 28. Well, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my 
mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You ever get the, the picture that like Nebuchadnezzar isn't all that smart? Like I had this terrifying dream of a giant statue and then a rock destroyed it. Build a statue. Got it. Like that's kind of how Nebuchadnezzar operates. Oh king, you're really prideful. You should break off your wickedness. How about I walk around on my roof and just, like who's he even talking to? Like himself, I think. Like he's just bragging about how awesome everything is. It is actually, I mean, to be fair, Babylon, according to all historians and records, Babylon was pretty impressive. Stephen Miller, a scholar, says that he referred to the city as uh, the great Babylon, and indeed it was great. Nebuchadnezzar, or sorry, Babylon was one of the preeminent cities of history, and during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, undoubtedly was the most magnificent and probably the largest city on earth. Herodotus, the ancient Greek historian, visited Babylon about 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar's time and was overwhelmed by its grandeur. Over 200 years later, Alexander the Great planned to make the city the headquarters for his vast empire. Here's something really cool. Babylon also boasted the famous Hanging Gardens, which according uh, uh, which the ancient Greeks considered one of the seven wonders of the world. According to the Babylonian historian Berossus, Nebuchadnezzar constructed these for his wife, Amethyst, who had left the mountains of her native media. It's like in Iran. Left those mountains for the alluvial plains of Babylonia. That's more Iraq. Her husband, in effect, built a mountain in the city to remind his wife of her homeland. These were elevated gardens high enough to be seen beyond the city walls. They boasted many different kinds of plants and palm trees. Ingenious hoists had been contrived by which to raise water to the high terraces from the Euphrates River. From the roof of his palace, the king gazed out on all this grandeur and his heart became filled with pride. The point being is, he, he really had done some pretty remarkable things. But his heart diminished God and was elevating himself. While the words, verse 31, were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time, seven years, shall pass over you until you know until you get it through your skull that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. That's gross. Uh... Sometimes people have objected to this story in the Bible because they say, oh, that could never really happen or people wouldn't really do, you know, live in the, wil- in the wilderness and eat grass like that. There is actually a known psychological condition that has a name and everything. It's called boanthropy. It's one of a few that would fall under the category in the DSM of, of delusional disorders. There's, I think it's like lycanthropy or something like that where people believe they're wolves, but boanthropy is people believe that they are cows. 
uh, in the 1940s, both Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, kind of the, some of the forerunners of modern psychology, they both wrote about it. Carl Jung, in particular, talks about how in all the cases that he's studied, boanthropy gets triggered by a dream. Very interesting. One of the quotes from him is telling the story of someone he was meeting with, a stubborn woman, dreamed she was attending an important social occasion. She was greeted by the hostess with the words, how nice you could come. All your friends are here and they're waiting for you. The hostess then led her to the door and opened it, and the dreamer stepped through into a cow shed. And that was the dream that she had, and then she started acting like a cow, literally. And they're like, oh, people don't eat grass. Have you ever seen, like, we got all sorts of weird TV shows now where people eat dirt and bugs and worms. Like, people eat grass. It happens. Like, this is not that far-fetched of a situation to imagine. But here's the theological point. Chunlong Sao says, the tree that had been at the center of the earth and that provided for animals of the earth is now a tethered animal that receives its provisions from heaven. The mighty tree has fallen. Verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar writes, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Lifted my eyes to heaven. Changed my my vantage point. Acknowledged who God is. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stop his hand or say to him, what are you doing? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. But now I, Nebuchadnezzar, do things a little bit differently. Now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Man, Did we just see Nebuchadnezzar get saved? (laughs) Have you ever thought that? Like, it would be hard to find a more biblically, uh, theologically true hymn of praise. Nebuchadnezzar, both at the beginning of the chapter and here at the end, is like praising God. I mean, it sounds like it could have been taken from the prophet Isaiah. Sounds like it could have been David in the Psalms. I think sometimes we don't think about salvation before the time of Jesus. We don't maybe think about conversion specifically. We just kind of assume, you know, guys like David or whoever, like they just always walked with God. But, but here's a guy who is saying, like, no, there's a very dramatic change has taken place in my life. A very drastic change has, has taken place in my life. Now I praise the, 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 the God of heaven, the King of heaven. It's an interesting thought. It's worth thinking about, don't you think? I, I don't know. I can't say with certainty. I, I read scholars and listened to, to, to preachers and kind of people on both sides of the proverbial aisle, but it's really interesting to think that there's a possibility that when we sit down for the 
wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of the ages, and there's people there from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and we're all gathered around the table to, to worship the Lamb who was slain. It's an interesting thought that we might look over and see Nebuchadnezzar sitting at the table. Only God truly knows. But what a thought. What a thought that God's grace could even extend to somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the point, though. He had to go through this humbling so that he could be freed from his pride and truly experience God. Here's the thing about pride. Pride harms everything. Pride, first of all, it harms relationship with God. The book of James 4, 6 says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride, pride has got nothing, like there's nothing good about pride, like the sinful pride that I'm talking about. Starting with, do you want to be in an, an, uh, a relationship of hostility with God? Like God has said, I'm the kind of God that will not deal with proud people. Pride harms relationship with God. Pride harms relationship with other people. I was thinking about in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love passage where it says, love is not arrogant or rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not boastful. It's all pride language. It's really hard to love somebody when you're looking down at them and elevating yourself. You're not actually loving them. You're not actually serving them. You're not actually building them up. You're building yourself up. Pride even harms your own self-perception and how you see yourself. I was thinking of in Romans 12 where it says, you know, to think of yourself with sober judgment, and then it immediately goes into the section about how we are one body with many parts. And how a prideful part of the body says, I'm a hand, I'm better than the foot, I'm an eye, I'm better than the ear. But that, that in humility, we're supposed to recognize we need everybody. We need all parts of the body to be healthy and functioning. Pride is sneaky, is it not? Pride messes with everything. Pride is so sneaky that we can even do things that look humble that are actually motivated by pride. Like I have rarely, rarely have I stood on the roof of my house and walked around and said, look at all of this that I have amassed by my great glory. I mean, it's, it's happened. Sure, who hasn't done that? But rarely do I do that, right? But my pride comes out in all these sneaky little ways. It comes out in, in, in different flavors. It comes out when I, when, I, when I interrupt people or talk over them. Or for some of you, it's you just don't have any empathy for other people and their struggles. For some of you, it's moralism. Like you add extra rules to the Bible and you put some impossibly high bar that nobody could live up to. Pride comes out even in that false humility sort of way where I'm, I'm acting kind of humble, but I'm really doing it so that I can get the attention of other people. You know what I'm talking about? <sighs> The story shows us that when we truly encounter God, pride starts to break. Those who are proud, the good news is, he's able to humble. I was thinking about, I was thinking about pride and humility and trees. I know it's a weird combination of things to think about, but I started just kind of thinking about how like even the whole storyline of the Bible could kind of be put into like a progression of trees. I was thinking about back in Genesis 3, the, the pride that took place at the foot of a tree. 
Like the whole mess, the whole human race has been plunged into this giant mess because Adam and Eve were incredibly prideful. They were created in the image and likeness of God, but boy, that serpent said you could be like God. And an act of great pride took place at the foot of a tree. God calls Israel, this people, the family of Abraham to himself, and he he gives them a promise that they would be planted like a tree. In Exodus chapter 15, there's this promise. I'm going to put you in the promised land. I'm going to plant your roots deep on the mountain of the Lord. But there's a warning. There's a curse, actually, that's pronounced in Deuteronomy 29, that if you do not walk according to my laws, if you do not stay faithful to the covenant, the marriage covenant that I'm making with you, you will be uprooted. That language is used in Deuteronomy 29. That's the curse, the curse of the law. You will be uprooted and removed from the land. And this tragic history of the people of Israel is that there's just nonstop, constant unfaithfulness. There's a verse in Ezekiel that talks about how people are sacrificing and burning offerings. It literally says, under every green tree and every leafy oak. Every single tree in all of Israel is polluted by idol worship. Downward trajectory, a downward spiral. And that's how we end up with Israel uprooted from the land and now in exile in Babylon. But then Jesus shows up. Then Jesus starts saying things like, you know, the kingdom of God is, is kind of like a tree. It's a mustard seed, this teeny tiny little seed that starts out so small and then starts to grow and and expand, and oh, and Jesus says, you know, fill the whole earth, and the birds will come and make their nests in it. Sounds like, sounds like Daniel chapter 4, does it not? And Jesus, though he's glorious, and though he's eternal, he takes on flesh, and he humbles himself, and he is obedient, even to die a criminal's death, hung on a tree because of our pride. Galatians 3 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles. That's us who are not of Jewish descent. We get the blessing of Abraham. Maybe even Nebuchadnezzar gets the blessing of Abraham because ultimately Jesus frees us from the curse of the law, being uprooted, being removed from the presence of God. He frees us from the curse of the law by showing the ultimate act of humility on a tree. There's Jesus. The only one who actually has any right to boast. The only one who has any right to elevate himself, lowering himself. And then he says, hey, come get connected to me like a a vine and branches. John chapter 17. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you want to actually live and grow and bear fruit, you got to get get connected into me. Paul comes along in the book of Romans and says, you know, hey, you Gentiles, you're like wild olive branches. He's like, it's really weird, but you're connected in. Connected into the family of Abraham, you get the promises that were delivered to Abraham by being connected to Jesus Christ through faith. And when we look ahead to the end of the story, one day we will stand face to face in the presence of God around a tree. Revelation 22, John's having this vision. 
And he sees the, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Does anybody look forward to that day? Tree and pride, the tree and humility, the tree and life Jesus is amazing. Wendy Witter, scholar, says this. She says, Nebuchadnezzar's undoing in Daniel 4 led to his overdue acknowledgement that the Most High God is sovereign over all human kings and kingdoms. A confession similar to the one that all humankind will eventually utter that Jesus Christ is Lord. From its humblest beginnings, the mustard seed kingdom planted through the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth will one day be in full glorious foliage and the dominion, glory, and eternal kingship of Christ will be evident to all. Unlike the glorious kingdom of Babylon the Great, this kingdom will be ruled by a gentle and generous king. And unlike the short-lived kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, this kingdom will have no end. This expectation of such a future kingdom is especially good news to the powerless, the oppressed, and the persecuted living under human political structures that pervert kingdom values. We're part of an eternal kingdom ruled over by the one who's truly glorious. Now, I want to say this here because, so she, she says, Wendy Witter says, that this is particularly good news to those who are powerless, and I, I read that, I thought that was profound, and I, I thought about, you know, persecuted Christians throughout the world and those who are like literally exiles, literally living under the threat of violence. Now, our government is not perfect. Can I get any men from anybody on that? Okay, but we are blessed to have more freedom and more, more privilege than, than really maybe any other nation on earth. And then Tremper Longman, another scholar, comes along and he warns us of something. I think this is also really helpful for us. While Daniel 4 demonstrates God's ability to humble the arrogant leader of a foreign oppressive empire, an enemy out there, so to speak, we must be careful concerning the pride that can infect our own lives. Christians are not immune from a pride that removes our eyes from God and places them squarely on ourselves. Indeed, here's what he says. It is in situations precisely like ours in the West where we do not face active persecution that this danger is most obvious. The message that God humbles the proud is not only a comfort, it is a warning to us all. So the good news of the gospel, that Jesus was humble and he paid the penalty for our pride, frees us to now admit that we're prideful. Can we just admit that we're prideful? Hi, I'm Aaron. I'm a recovering prideaholic, okay? Like, admit it. I had a friend uh, when I lived in Alaska, and he got a license plate, a customized license plate for his truck, and it said, I am HMBL. I am humble. 
And I remember, like, he, it was funny. It was a great joke, but so many people did not get the joke. They would walk up to him like at church, like, you shouldn't have that on your license plate because you're not, you're, I mean, you're not like bad, but you're not like, all. Oh, that's really prideful to say you're humble, right? And he's like, I know, it, that's the joke. You're not, you're ruining the joke. It's funny, but and like, right, you can't say that. Like, like well, hi, I'm really humble. Uh, did you know how humble I am? Like, I, actually, I also had a guy say that to my face one time. It was one of the, I was uh, the only appropriate word in that moment. He looked at me square in the eyes. He's like, no, I'm, I'm humble. I'm very humble. I don't sin with pride. And I was gobsmacked. That is the only word that you could use for that moment. Like, I just literally have nothing to say to you right now. Friends, if we truly understand the gospel, we don't need to pretend to be humble. We don't need to put on some sort of false humility. We can just admit it. I'm very prideful. I'm very prideful. I need God's grace more in my life every single day because every time that he strips away a layer of pride and we think we're finally getting somewhere, I see yet another layer of pride. So you need to admit that you're prideful. You also need to learn your specific type of pride. I listed some earlier and there's so many more I could list. Boasting, not being empathetic, false humility. How, how does your pride express itself? You know who's going to know? People who are closest to you. Your spouse, your friends, your community group. Because pride has this blinding effect. Pride, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Proud people don't think they're proud. So the gospel frees us to admit that we're incredibly prideful. The gospel frees us to keep peeling back layers and just to see how deep that root goes. And the gospel frees us to even with specificity name how our pride shows up. And then the gospel frees us to humble ourselves before Jesus. The Bible talks about God as being high and lofty. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah, it says, I'm, I'm, I'm high and lofty, I dwell in, in unreachable greatness. He says, but also with the lowly and the contrite. And there's other verses that talk about who could even ascend to the heavens? Who could get up high you know, to be with God? The, the implied answer is you can't. So if God is, if, let's say that God is in unreachable heights, and in the lowest of the possible lows, only one of those two directions can we get to. We can't climb to the heavens to get with God. So if we want to be with God, guess where we need to go? Lower. No, lower. You ever wondered why um, kneeling is the most often used description for prayer? Like, I'm going to do this. This is weird, but laying like on your face before God like like this if people walked in right now they'd be like really freaked out okay uh like like i can't get any lower and yet it's still not low enough because if i want to be with God this is where i got to go i've got to get lower i've got to go i've got to get like down on my knees like, when I pray, sometimes I do kneel. And God doesn't need my kneeling, but I might need my kneeling. To be just reminded, God, I, I am so full of pride. My heart is so sick with pride. And you have said that you don't, you don't deal with people who are trying to go up and climb the ladder, but, 
But God, you and your grace, you descended. And you, you dwell with the contrite and the lowly. Forgive me of my pride. Wash me clean of my pride. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then you know what you do? You humble yourself and repent. And you place your faith in Jesus, that he's a God of grace. That even though we have opposed him in our pride, Jesus came in humility to save us. Hey friends, you know what you do if you're a Christian? Same exact thing. Every day. Every day. More and more. God, I want more humility. I want more death to my pride and my self-obsession. And I want more of your grace and your goodness. And so I'm throwing myself on your mercy because I got no other hope. In a moment, friends, we're going to go to the table of the Lord and we're going to eat and we're going to drink and we can marvel at the fact that the king of the universe has invited us to have a seat at the table. We didn't climb that ladder. We didn't ascend that hill on our own. We were invited by the lowly, humble King Jesus. So friends, let's humble ourselves. God, we come to you now and just confess just how prideful we often are. God, we confess that we try to elevate ourselves. We put other people down. We, we even lower you or diminish your goodness because of trying to lift ourselves up. So God, I just pray that you would strip that away. You would break that off of us. God, I ask and I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as we come to the table now, as we eat and as we drink and as we reflect and we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. May we be just overwhelmed at your grace for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Pastor Doug. I so appreciate the teaching we receive not because of the greatness of our pastors, but because God has shown us great favor in going through the word, his word. Go ahead and take out the uh, bread and the juice as we transition to communion. If you didn't get one, there's might be, there's some down here, I think. Or they're with the microphone, maybe, I don't know. Um, and I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks and broken and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We know that in communion, we remember that God reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Paul calls us to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes through communion and to examine ourselves before eating. 
Before taking communion, I urge you to sincerely seek God's direction through a time of prayer. Pride removes our eyes from God and places them squarely on ourselves. When I rely only on myself and others, I arrogantly make choices and decisions without seeking God. It's almost like I believe my prayers would not make a difference. Confess your pride to the Father. Give thanks for the grace and forgiveness we now celebrate. Confess your need for a Savior and join us in the hope we have in Jesus. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Point out anything in me, anything in us that offends you, and lead us along the path of everlasting life. Please, Father, have your way with us now. Amen.